You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into that. And today as a guest speaker, we have Brian McMahon, founder and CEO at Expert Dojo, one of the largest accelerators in Los Angeles. And today we'll talk about accelerators. How do they invest? How does Expert Dojo invest specifically? Where do they find their deals? And who should go through an accelerator program? So Brian, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Expert Dojo for those who don't know it yet. Uh, great to great to be here, first of all. Um, yeah, so Expert Dojo are a pure international accelerator based here in Santa Monica. Uh, we consider ourselves really to be the gateway to the United States for everybody else in the world. Uh, our, our programs normally are like 12 or 13 people in each program, so we keep them very small and curated because we're so focused on growth hacking and brand and all those wonderful things that lead to outreach. And the folks we get are from all over the world. Like we'll bring in companies, I think our last accelerator, we had companies from Egypt, from India, from Africa, two companies from Africa, a company from Argentina, a company from Finland, a company from Spain, a company from the UK, um, and a bunch of other folks as well, Portugal, Crikey, and, and, and a stack of others. So that's Expert Dojo. We positioned ourselves as pretty much the most prolific investor anywhere, maybe in the southern half of America. We're investing in about one deal per week right now. So extremely prolific in our investing. And I'm just a regular guy who's lived in lots and lots and lots and lots of countries. I've had a couple of different companies, everything from property development over to tech platforms, and have spent the last 30 years or so really in the school of early stage startup and learning about what are the specific indicators that give a better probability of success. Nice. And yes, Expert Dojo is really active. It has been active, but it's becoming more and more active every single month, honestly. So uh, I got the part that you invest in early stage startups and those have to be you know uh from other countries what specifically do you invest in are there any particular fields that you're looking for and what's generally the stage that you invest in is it like pre-seed or pre-pre-seed what should a startup basically have to be accepted into expert dojo program yeah so number one we would probably invest 70 percent of each cohort program into international companies. And then 30% are into either immigrant founders that are based here in the United States or just exceptional founders. Like there's sometimes we just find that someone who is just exceptional at execution, they're not an immigrant, they're not international, they're born here, they've lived here their entire lives, but we just love them. And because our entire thesis is to be inclusive. We want to make sure that we're inclusive of the entire world. Um, however, where our strongest, um, I would say, advantages to startups are, is the fact of positioning us as a launchpad. So most launchpad into the United States. So most accelerators focus on taking very early stage companies, a lot of which would be pre-seed, a lot of which would be pre-product. Maybe some will have product, but maybe not have traction. And But because we are an international accelerator, the majority of companies that we see do already have a product or they have a service. Um, we're pretty agnostic as to the type of service we worked in. As long as our principals and our LPs and our GPs 
have a knowledge of that particular sector. We're fine with it. So we've taken companies in in med tech. We've taken companies in an impact. We've taken companies in uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we've taken companies in automation. And at the same time, we've taken just basic marketplaces, which are connecting the right parties to each other as well. Um, so a lot of the companies, because we are so focused, not so much on raising subsequent investment for companies, but we're so focused on building an American brand, making sure that brand speaks to the American consumer, making sure that we then focus all of our efforts on growth hacking that product with every single tactic that we can use, then we tend to get later stage companies. So where they are at the seed stage, but they'll say, huh, okay, our valuation is slightly higher than that of an accelerator, but we're prepared to take a little bit of money in from Expert Dojo because we believe that Expert Dojo are going to help us scale and reach that unicorn status quicker than we could have got there ourselves. Mm-hmm. Nice. Got it. So uh, now let's talk about a really, really important uh, question that every founder should ask themselves. Where should I go first? So... In the beginning, there are multiple options. There are incubators, accelerators, uh, going on your own, bootstrapping, angel investors, and sometimes even VCs. So how should, what factors should founder consider prior to choosing you know, the right path? So everything, so an incubator, I'm gonna put slightly aside because an incubator normally, people cross mingle these products, these, these services all the time, which is just really confusing for founders. But an incubator is supposed to be a place where an idea of a product is taken and then they will take the majority, of, or maybe it's their idea, and they will actually incubate that idea in their, in their location and take the majority of the shares of the ownership of that company. And then sometimes they hire a founder and then sometimes a founder will actually have that. So if you look at Science, our Dollar Shave Club, or, or uh, many other places around the U.S., like they act as these incubation centers where it's all their own, um, all their own products. Now, so let's leave that aside for the minute because that's when a founder has decided that they do not want to really grow their own product. They want to outsource that to someone else. But if a founder wants to grow their own product, there's only one rule, and that is that unless you're incredibly lucky, you cannot get there on your own, especially if it's the first time. There's just too many things that you have to know. And mm -hmm. those things that you have to know go across the board from your, to the basic stuff like your cash flow and making sure that you're a fiscally responsible CEO, to hiring the right team, to signing the right terms with the right venture capital investors, to making sure that you build the right board around, like all of these things are incredibly difficult decisions. So should somebody use an accelerator or not? It totally depends on the team that they have and the team that they're building to go forward. And think of it like this. If you want to be a world-class ice skating champion, I don't know why ice skating's in my head, but let's say you want to be a world-class ice skating champion, you know that you have certain skills to get you to be the number one world-class ice skating champion in the world, but you also know there are other things that you will need to know when you move past your existing level to the next level and the following level and the following level right up to world-class level. Now, the more of those attributes and talents and skills that you have in place and people that you have in place to make that happen, the quicker you're going to make it to the top. In some, in some ways, you may never make it to the top because you didn't have that coach to teach you about you, how you should eat and how often you should sleep. Like, forget about 
being a great champion, actually making sure you have the body to be able to be a great champion. Mm -hmm. So an accelerator is one of those things where it's good for some people, it's bad for other people. Some people need it, some people don't. But what everybody needs is to make sure that they are surrounded with the right people in their team. And I always say this to people that we interview for Expert Dojo, and we say, let's say the folks we love and we want to put investment into. If you don't see value in how we can help you grow and get to that next stage quicker, then you should choose somebody else. Forget the money. The money's not worth anything. 50K, 100K, who cares? It's about how quickly can you get to the goal line and how many other people are going to be running to the goal line and playing interference against you. Great, great. That's 100% correct. So speaking of interviewing founders specifically, you interview, I mean, you invest in one start per week, which is just insane rate. So mm-hmm. I assume you get a lot of deals coming your way. And what are the major things that you look in in that deal specifically? So when you open a pitch deck, when you look at one pitcher, what are the major, let's say, three things that you look at first? Proof of execution and ability to scale are the two main things for me. So proof of execution does not mean that a founder has to have done it before, but there are clues in people's lives as to what they've achieved and what they haven't achieved. So I had a founder we just invested in, and she had she does not even have a website for the company that she's creating. But she's a neuroscientist. <laughs> she's gone through John Hodgkins. She has been a, a, an actress on a show, which is extremely difficult to get into. Um, she built pretty much everything herself. And, and I know that based on those things that she's already achieved in her life, the chances of her not being able to achieve this are very small because she's already achieved much more. And then I look at ability to scale and I say, okay, there are certain very important factors for a company to be able to scale. Number one, the future product that they're building has to be a product that can scale. We call it island topping. So that's when we say the first island is, let's say, $10,000 a month in revenue. And then let's pretend that they're all revenue companies. And then the next island is 100,000 a month in revenue. And the next island is a million a month. And the next island is 10 million a month. So then I'll say, okay, has the entrepreneur demonstrated that they can build bridges quickly to go from one island to the next island with those bridges being as believable as possible? Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, do they have the team that even if they have hypothetically built those bridges and told us what those bridges are going to look like, do they have the team in place to actually be able to scale and make this happen? And that means going through the different stages of entrepreneurship. We call the first stage the Viking stage, which is very much the outreach and the branding stage. And the second stage is the structure stage, which is very much about the processes and the procedures and the structures and the team. And then the next stage is the Knights of the Round Table stage, where you have to have seven or eight or nine people around this round table who are all better than you at doing their specific task. And then final stage, you know, you get to the sensei stage. So we want to make sure, do they have the future team building capacity to be able to make sure, and that's board advisors, everybody, to be able to make it through the scaling that they're going to be able to go through. And then when we say, okay, cool, we're happy that the product is being able to go through Island Hoppy. We're hopping, we're, we're happy that the team is able to actually skill gap all the way to make it right through to the end where they get to that sensei stage. And then we're going to say, right, let's look at the market and let's look at all of the forces in the market that can possibly knock us off our throne, either before we get to that throne or after we get to that throne. What are those forces? How challenging are they? What type of risk does it represent? And how do we mitigate against that risk? 
Now, mm-hmm. normally with those factors, look, there's a stack more stuff that goes in there as well. There's gut, there's previous companies we've looked at, there's a bunch more stuff. But really, after we look at those factors, we have a very, very good feel if we like someone. I, I had two calls with two founders this morning already, and both founders, <laughs> I know, based on those factors, that we would probably do term sheets to. Just for those who don't know which time zone we're in, we're in LA and it's 9 a.m. here. So, Brian, you start working early. Respect. Um, now let's talk about getting knocked out of the th- throne. So, you know, one of the kind of uh, not serious, I think, questions, but one of the questions that people make fun of is, you know, what if Facebook makes the same solution? And that is viewed as one of the, you know, risk factors of being knocked out of that throne. What do you think are the actual real major factors of, of that? What are the major factors of, you know, getting kicked out of that throne? So look, we can look at this from two sides. From one side of it, let's look at it from Uber's side, which is a great example, right? So mm-hmm. Uber is a pretty terrible product. The only thing they do is they get venture subsidized rides. That's it. Venture capitalists pay for the, the next ride that you take on an Uber, a venture capitalist is paying for 50% of the cost of that ride. Simple as that. That's how Uber survive. And they pay for 50% of the cost of the ride in the knowledge that they will push every single competitor out of the market so that Uber, when we get to whatever that time period is, is it autonomous cars? Is it that there's just no competitors? Is it that the taxis have gotten decimated and they're, they're a mere shadow of their former self? Whatever that time period looks like in the future, then Uber can then come up and they can increase their prices by 50%. The, the market economics would mean that they can now offer a more economic product and they can possibly be a profitable company. But in the meantime, they have billions and billions and billions of dollars to destroy you. And, and startups need to know that that will happen. Now, on the other side of the coin, let's look at the example that you and I talked about this morning, which is WebEx versus Zoom. Like WebEx, Cisco have been around for a million years, but it is truly the most terrible user experience in the entire world because it's made by a bunch of old men. That's it. And you can't say to a bunch of old men, and when I say old, I mean old in their minds, not old in their bodies. Like I'm a 51-year-old guy and I'm, telling, I'm 22 years old when it comes to how my mind thinks for innovation. But the problem is once you work for a large company, you become a gray middle management old man because that's what companies turn you into. And I'm sure there's some women working on it as well, but I guarantee you that most of that was put together by 90% and 95% folks who have no ability to innovate at all. So the only chance, and then look at what Zoom did. Like, did WebEx compete with them? Yeah, even Google, which by the way is no longer a startup, it's now an established, boring company with those same gray (laughs) middle management men and women that are in Cisco, right? So what happens, like Zoom comes out, and even with the unbelievably unfair competitive practices of Google, so i.e., Everybody's got Gmail, and what happens is when you invite anybody to a meeting on Gmail, they will immediately send out a Google Hangout to the extent that they know they're confusing people, even if you have in your location a Zoom Hangout, a Zoom uh, video conferencing number. They will still put Google Hangout in there. But how far have Zoom gone and how badly have Google Hangout done? Yeah, Google Camps, they have had their lunch eaten. WebEx have had their lunch eaten, and I'm sure people are in boardrooms saying they're doing really well right now. They're not. They're doing. They're a disgrace. They should have owned the market. This was their opportunity to decimate and zoom a small, non-existent, 
tiny little company zipped straight past everybody for one reason and one reason only, and that is because they have innovation, they have youth of mind, and they have user experience directly in their mind. That's what they led with. So, yeah, you just have, you know, so number one, yes, unfair, unfair competitive practices are out there, and they will try and destroy you the same way that Amazon, Uber, and all their friends do every single day of the week. Mm-hmm. Number two, they have a disadvantage in that they are old and decaying, and you are not. So as an early-stage startup, if you're aware of the threats that are out there, if you mitigate towards those threats and you make sure that you're not going to run out of money, and you aggressively grow tech, you can win. That's the way the world works. Right, right, absolutely. And ironically, we are using WebEx right now. And yes, it is pretty horrible from the UI UX point of view. So Brian, you're completely right. <laughs> but now let's talk about more current situations. So COVID, pre-COVID world slash COVID world, you have roughly 70 companies in your portfolio right now. How did they go through COVID? Uh, what was the major trend that you've seen? And you know, what's your recommendation to early state founders in terms of you know, shifting their company to adapt to the new realities? So we had three companies that had a really tough time with COVID. They just had products that were bang in the middle of the world that is open in a shop. <laughs> you know, just, there's no way, there was just no <laughs> way for them to pivot, right? We probably had another 15 or 20 companies that could have been negatively affected by COVID, but they shifted like incredibly well. So one of our companies, Meet Caregivers, they had carers who would go to the homes of older people and then make sure that those older people were taken care of in their own homes, right? Which is a huge market right now. But obviously that stopped happening with COVID because people couldn't go to, to older people's homes, especially if they had been to other places. So they immediately pivoted and started selling services to those same elder residents that they would need. Everything from ventilators to masks to having food delivered to their homes to everything. It was really smart. So it really showed the ability. And when I talk about execution, this is exactly what I mean unbelievably unfair and terrible things will happen to all of us during our lifetime in our businesses. If we have a business for 30 years, it's going to happen. It's just a question of when, right? And the question becomes, how prepared are we for that? Some people have enough money in their bank account to last them out, the two, three, four years that it will take. Some people are able to pivot really strongly. Some people are able to reinvent themselves. Like we had one of our companies that reinvented themselves from a cruise experiential company to an online um, uh, cruise experiential company, which looked like now it could be 10 times more important because of what they've done. So it's not about, you know, like Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So COVID was a punch in the face for probably 30% of most venture capitalist portfolios. The question is, how did people react to that afterwards? The great entrepreneurs will come through stronger and stronger. And then we probably had about 60% of our portfolio that are just laughing all the way to the bank. They're in a fantastic shape. And they see this as the greatest of all times. They see their larger competitors quaking in their boots. They've reduced their Facebook and their marketing spend. They've reduced the staff spend. They fired people, which means their morale is low. Like if ever there was a time to attack the castle, this is the time when the gates are open. 
stack in the castle. I love your metaphors. Love them. Uh, so let's <laughs> let's talk about uh, the creativity that we have seen during COVID. So you mentioned that one of your portfolio companies has changed from you know just on uh, cruise experience to online cruise experience. How mm-hmm. is that the most creative COVID adaptation that you've seen in your portfolio, or is there something else uh, there? you were like okay that was really great wonderful move it was smart it was very very creative what, what was that move you know i've just seen a lot you know through, throughout all of the different companies we've had i've just seen a lot like even going back to the me caregivers they were doing a hundred thousand dollars a month pre-covid and then after COVID, even though like they should have decimated their business they should have taken their revenue from a hundred thousand a month down to zero and what happened was it increased their revenue from a hundred thousand a month to two hundred thousand dollars a month so it was really impressive and it put us into a place where investors started looking at her to make sure that she was that to, to, they started looking at her to invest as opposed to before you know vertanza uh, which was a company that did training in universities. So they did sales training in universities, of which much of it was online. But of course, the universities stopped teaching. So they tripled down on their sales um, and they got 300% increase on sales. We just nice. oversubscribed on a round for like 1.25 million, which came through three angel funds in the area. So they're again laughing all the way to the bank. And um, we've got a number of, and then the, the the cruise ship cruising company is fantastic because previously, yeah, they were just a provider of other providers providing these incredible cruising experiences. But the cruising companies already had lots of cruising experiences already, so these people were not special. They now have the ability to save the cruising companies. Like, think about how important that is. They can say, in the same way that Disney have gone from having a park with amazing attractions that makes little boys and girls' eyes light up. They now have an online experience, which they're quadrupling down on. So now the ability for this cruise experiential company to be able to do that, it means that they can then go to the, to the cruise shipping companies and say, hey, look, we can save you. You owe a billion dollars? Great. We're going to talk about how you galvanize and excite and, and ignite your audience in a way that you could never have done before. And previously, you would have just left them. And we're going to find you a new demographic of people. And that new demographic of people are going to be the Burning Man people. They're going to be folks who would never have looked at cruises before. Like, this is mm-hmm. your time to reinvent yourself. And that's how we have to look at times like this. There are, there are people who look at COVID situations and say, what was me? What was me? This is terrible. And some of those people, are, I've got very real reasons to do so. They may have... I mean, if I have a if I had a bar today, I would be, you know, I would be crying, because especially, you know, I speak, I'm, I'm Irish originally, and I speak to a lot of my my friends back in Ireland, and um, and you know, bars are Ireland. I mean, that's why everybody goes there. There's no tourism, there's no bars. They haven't had a bar open in nine or twelve months. So you would think, like, how can we possibly survive from this? But you can, as long as your mindset is we need to create the new tomorrow. Like if we accept that yesterday will never ever come back again in the form that it was in, is there an opportunity while everybody else is so miserable and so rightfully upset and not knowing what to do, is there a way that during that mayhem and panic that we can come out with something so incredibly brilliant that we can get an entire population of people excited by it? Right, right. That's... That's a really positive outlook on life. I love it. So here, uh, 
let's touch on to something we've quickly touched on in the past, which is you have to have money in your bank account to be able to fight you know, bigger competitors. So what's your advice to founders trying to raise money right now during this pandemic when no one's really sure what's going to happen post-COVID world? How should they raise money? So number one, there are many investors like us. We're investing at twice the rate that we did pre-COVID. And there are many other investors like us that are more aggressively because we know the money for investors is made always during recessions. Like you can get lucky during a good period, but in general, the prices of companies become too expensive and it becomes almost impossible to make the right bet to find the right company. During recessions and during COVID, times like this, we have panic, we have mayhem, and nobody knows what to do. This is the time to forge on much harder. And there are many, many other folks who are thinking like me. So like kind of the bad news for venture capitalists is it's a very, very hard time for them to raise funds. Very hard time. Um, but the good news is if you already have funds like us, like other VCs out there, then there's plenty of dry powder and we want to deploy that dry powder and we want to put it out to the market as much as we can. And not just the initial 100,000 that we put into companies, but we'll do follow-on checks for a million dollars into companies if we really like how those companies are growing. So it's a very, very, very powerful time. Now, what's happened is the angels, the amateurs have left the market. So the people who were torn between, oh, should I invest in a company? Should I invest in a house? Should I invest in some alternative stocks? Maybe I'll look at some penny stocks, some pink slip companies. You know, those types of people have pulled back. And rightfully, because they've said, hey, hold on a second. I'm not interested in the 10-year return. I want to make sure I get my one-year return. And I want to make sure that that one-year return is off the charts. So, and those people have, have gone, but there are so many good investors out there, which are fine. Here's what's really important. The most important thing is that great companies will always get funded. Mediocre companies will always struggle to get funded. Poor companies that cannot demonstrate that huge vision and all of the things that I said at the beginning of this talk, they will not get funded. And they will, but in good times, they might've got funded. Right. Because there's lots of money around, people would give it out, they'd give it. So if you're a company that's struggling to get funding, you've got to ask yourself why. I mean, is this, is this not a no-brainer decision? Is this a decision where if you gave it to yourself, would you take it? And most of the time, the answer is no. So we can tell, I can tell very quickly if a company has an incredible opportunity to scale. I can tell really quickly if a company is perfect for us and if we're perfect for them. And if you're a startup, I would say the number one piece of advice I would give you is focus on your growth. Focus on making sure that people find you. So I always, I always talk about whenever anybody looks like they're desperate in life, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's a, a boyfriend looking for a girlfriend or somebody looking for a job or a girlfriend you know, looking for a boyfriend. I don't care if it's somebody looking for venture capital. The moment that that desperation, that that need is seeing on your face, Unless you are incredibly lucky, you are going to push that other person away. Yep. We all want we all want the attributes in another person which are, which represent the strength that we want to be alongside going forward. So if I'm going to invest in a house, unless I know housing like the back of my hand, I want that house to look like it's going to last. I'm not going to buy a house that's right on top of the ocean 
that looks like it's been built on cardboard that could fall into the ocean in two weeks' time. I want a house that every builder in Santa Monica is looking to try and build onto because it's the great architect, greatest architectural design that's ever been built. And I want a house that's actually making it really difficult for me to buy the house because so many other people want to buy the house. So make yourself scarce. So you do two things. Number one, you focus on your growth and you underpromise and you overdeliver. Number two, you don't make it look like you're looking for investors, but you quietly pick up names of investors who are within your local market and outside your market who have invested in spaces like yours. And you start to keep those people updated. And you're not saying, please, can I have their most of money? What you're saying to them is, look, I'm building an epic business. We're going to be a unicorn. This is when we're going to be a unicorn. You should watch us and people will come to you. Right. That's the perfect strategy. Never say please in your pitch. Like, well, <laughs> if you say please in your pitch, that's literally a killer 100%. So on this really positive note, Brian, we're going to move on to the last question of today's episode, which is going to be a call to action. So once the episode is over, what is the one thing you want the listener to do as soon as it's over? So what, what, what would I like founders to do just in general? Um. Probably more from the fundraising point of view because, you know, it's fundraising radio, so it makes more sense. Okay, so look, number one, I don't particularly, and I don't I want this to sound wrong, I don't, we find companies we love. That's how we work it, right? So it's very seldom somebody will listen to us on a podcast and say, oh, I heard you on a podcast, I want to apply for the accelerator. And, and if it does happen, great, you know, put your application through Expert Dojo and we're always happy to look for you. I think there's a much more general point here, where, which I always want to make to founders. And if we're part of that journey, we're part of that journey. And if we're not, I'm equally happy. And that point is that early stage startup is one of the greatest endeavors that you can do in your life because you get to ignite something which most people in the world, like 95% of people, will never, ever, ever get to experience this. And you get to ignite this creativity which you've been given to bring something to the world that has never, ever, ever existed before. And you get to be the one to build it. You get to be the one to create the legacy. You get to be the one who's the Elon Musk who stands there and says, I don't really care what other people think anymore. I have created, therefore I am. And if you focus your mind on that and you focus your mind on scaling it to the maximum and you make sure that you're building it with a budget that allows you to do that based on what you need to do for at least a six-month period, then you just go for that and you surround yourself with investors. You make sure the investor groups know what you're doing. You make sure the VCs know who you, what, what you are doing. You make sure you're extremely aware of what investor is doing what at what stage. You make sure your team is really well placed to be able to scale it up. And then you just put your foot on the metal and you go for it. These next two years will be the greatest opportunity that you have ever had in your entire life. So go for it. Give it everything you have. Forget your work-life balance and all those wonderful things that people with jobs have and focus <laughs> every single ounce of energy you have on building a monster startup. And the investment will come to you, the money will come to you, and the growth will come to you. Right. That's a very positive note to finish the episode on. So here we'll wrap it up. My call to action is going to be go to the description of this episode. I'll leave a link to Expert Dojo applications. So if you think you're the right fit, for Expert Dojo, make sure to apply. I'll also leave a link to uh, Brian's LinkedIn and 
I'll leave a link to something else at this point. I don't know what it's going to be, but something else is going to be there. So definitely make sure to look at the description of this episode. And as usually, have a good day.